Well, have you ever had this experience where you um, have been in the car, maybe you're with a couple of friends, and you crank the radio up or you crank up your tunes uh, on your phone, and you're just singing uh, at the top of your lungs, and then your friend or friends just say to you, wait a minute, those aren't the lyrics, right? Have you ever had that? Like, sometimes we misunderstand the lyrics that we hear or, or, or even sing out. Uh, I ran across some misunderstood lyrics recently, and uh, I want to share some of these with you. Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze, for those of you who are the Woodstock generation. The correct lyric is, excuse me while I kiss the sky. But what some people sing or hear is, excuse me while I kiss this guy. No, not the lyric, all right? Or hot chocolate, hot chocolate sexy thing. The correct lyric is, I believe in miracles. But what people sometimes sing is, I remove umbilicals. <laughs> Uncle Crackers drift away, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll. But then some people will sing this, give me the beach, boys, and free my soul, which is not true at all. But my favorite is Queen's We Will Rock You. We Will Rock You. The correct lyric is kicking your can all over the place. But what some people sing or hear is kicking your cat all over the place, which I like better. I like that lyric better. That's, that's my lyric for that song, right? So it's funny how, uh, uh, you know what, one phrase or one word, you know, you get it wrong, and it changes the meaning of the whole message of that song. And sometimes I kind of feel like that about theology. I kind of feel like that about how we believe as followers of Jesus, and particularly about the subject we're going to talk about today, resurrection. I believe there's some things we miss out on that we don't really totally understand when we talk about resurrection. And although we have been tracking through very significant moments in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're going to come to one today in John chapter 11, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, one of the most memorable stories in the life of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn there this morning. We're going to be looking at this passage a little bit, and we're going to be talking about this whole subject. Because I sense this, that if we really understood what resurrection was about, and we weren't missing anything about it, that it would drastically alter how we approach life. That it would give us faith and courage and hope to address some of the things we would live larger lives, but we would also be able to punch through challenges and adversities that we face in life. And I think it's so important as we think about this and as we walk through the story that we understand as we tackle this that there are expansive truths sometimes in stories like this in the gospel that we just need to get a hold of. And when we do, it changes how we live. It changes how we live. So today we're going to tackle this one in John chapter 11. It is the seventh miracle, by the way, in the book of John. So John records seven miracles, except that he doesn't call them miracles. The other gospel writers call them miracles. He calls them signs. And he calls them signs for a reason because they are designed to give us a deeper meaning. Miracles are a sheer display of God's power. They are, they are significant displays of God's power and capacity to do something supernatural in the natural world. But signs, although they are part of the miracle, drive us deeper. They try to get us to understand spiritual truths that are important underneath the surface of that particular miraculous event. And so John records these seven signs. The first one is turning the water to wine at that marriage uh, in Cana in Galilee. The second was the healing of the royal official's son in John 4. 
The third one, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. The fourth one is the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And also in John chapter 6, his walking on the water. Then there's a sixth one, the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. And then this seventh one in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. And this particular sign combines two things. It combines the sign itself, the raising of Lazarus, but it also combines one of Jesus' self-identity statements. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Jesus having these self-identity statements? I myself am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. And this one, he's going to give one of those other self-identity statements. The number seven is going to be significant. And I'm not going to tell you the significance right now. But the number seven is significant because in Hebrew numerology, seven represents the number of perfection or completion. It is the, the number that everything is good and everything is okay. And this event, the resurrection of Lazarus, will be the catalytic event that will put the nail in Jesus' coffin. It will be the event that drives the religious leaders to finally make the decision that they need to execute Jesus and they need to take him out of the picture. So it becomes a very significant story for us. And what we're going to see as we walk through the story is six kind of expansive truths. So I will walk you through the story, kind of an executive summary, and, and then I'm going to just kind of roll back and kind of look at these six expansive truths. Does that sound okay? Good. I'm glad you said yes, because that's the way it's going to go anyhow. <laughs> so first, I'm going to walk you through the story. This is the executive summary. So Jesus is some 50 or 60 miles away from the town of Bethany where Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, live. Uh, he's a couple days' journey away. And Jesus gets word that Lazarus is deathly ill. His friend Lazarus is deathly ill. And there's this great expectation. It's the elephant in the room. There's this huge expectation that when Jesus gets the word that Lazarus is ill, he will drop everything, he will rush as quickly as he can, he will come to Bethany, and he will cure the illness that Lazarus has. That's the huge expectation. But Jesus does something that's really uh, weird. Indescribably, all right, Jesus drags his feet. He does not drop everything. He does not rush to Bethany. In fact, he stays two more days where he's at with his disciples. And they're a little bit perplexed about this as well because this is very uncharacteristic of Jesus. But one of the things that I love about Jesus is Jesus is this person that whenever events like this occur... I don't know what happens to you. I tend to sometimes get flooded uh, or I'll, I'll have this huge emotional reaction or I'll kind of uh, panic or be out. Jesus does none of those things. Jesus always seems to have control of the situation even when he feels strong emotions. So Jesus just waits for these couple of days. And then finally, he and the disciples start the two days journey and they arrive four days later. At that point, Jesus is met outside the village by Martha, one of the sisters. And when he meets her, he has this incredible one-on-one -on -one conversation with her. Right? Starting in verse 17, I want to read you part of this as they meet together. Now, Jesus came, and he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. There's the self-identity statement of Jesus. I, myself, am the resurrection and the life. And then he asks Martha this great question. Do you believe this? Not, not do you believe that there's life after death, which he does talk about there. Do you believe who I am? And she comes up with this incredible confession. You know, the Jews of that time, they, their conception of resurrection was very small, very narrow, and very limited. They believed that there would be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of all the righteous on the final day of human history when Messiah would return and set up his kingdom. All of the righteous would be resurrected. Justice would be done on the earth. Creation would be healed. The Messiah would make everything great, and on that last day, all those who were righteous would be raised bodily to a new life. But that was all they had. And it was going to be done on a mass scale. Everybody all together, right? Not a team sport. That's what the resurrection was. And that's all they really thought about resurrection. They did not have a very well-developed sense of what resurrection was really all about. So as Jesus moves into this, he's going to expand the understanding of all of this, right? He's going to try to, to understand. And here's the great thing, too, and I love this about Martha. Martha makes this incredible confession. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Do you know that nobody else in all of the New Testament, except for Peter, utters a confession like that? Like, I think Martha gets a bad rap. Because we always hear the story about Mary and Martha, and Mary's always doing all the work around the house, and she's so busy, and she doesn't have time for Jesus. Uh, but, but Mary does. Mary will sit at his feet, right? And we say, well, Martha's all the type A, and, you know. She, but here's this unbelievable confession. And what you begin to see in Martha is she's a woman of very, very deep faith and relationship in Jesus. Then Jesus moves from there. Martha goes, she tells Mary that the teacher has come, and Mary rushes out to meet Jesus. And he has this very emotionally charged, draining exchange with Mary at this point. She runs out and she collapses just in full meltdown mode in front of Jesus, right? The word that, that John uses here is pipto. It's not the normal word for falling down in worship. It's just the word to collapse in front of somebody to the ground. She is devastated. She's broken. She is hurting. She's probably even feeling a little bit angry and betrayed. Because she says to Jesus almost the very same words that Martha says. Oh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Except she changes the word order. That one little word, my, is placed in a different place in the Greek text just to give it emphasis. It's like, Jesus, if you had come, my brother would not have died. My brother. I'm sure that Martha and Mary had probably talked. Maybe they'd conversed together like, why isn't Jesus here? And if, he, if he'd just come here, he could have done something, right? He could have cured our brother. He could have caught it before it, it, it turned into death. I'm sure that they had talked. And you can kind of tell there's this very emotional thing going on. And it's here that you see the sheer humanity of Jesus as well. Look at verse uh, 33. It says, Now when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. There's that verse, that one that you all memorized, because when you had to memorize a verse of the Bible and say it in Sunday school, that was the one you wanted to use. Short, sweet, to the point, right? Jesus wept. Here's what's interesting about that word. It's not the normal word for weeping. Normal word for weeping is clio, which is the idea of almost a clinical kind of wailing that would go on. And you have to remember that in Jewish culture, they oftentimes hired professional mourners to join the family. Uh, they didn't maybe really feel compassion, but they were hired to, to mourn for the family, right? But Jesus is genuinely moved. This word means to authentically enter into the emotional space of another person in what they are going through. But you also will see something else here. There's this very visceral, emotional response that Jesus has here. There are two other words that John uses here, all right? It's the word to be moved in spirit, right? This word is used of animals snorting before they make a charge, like a bull or a horse in battle. It's that kind of, you know how you sometimes do that? And not only that, but he adds one other word to this. He adds that idea of being troubled, that is tossed around or agitated in spirit. And you can kind of see something's going on deep down inside of Jesus. There is something brewing inside of him about this. It will sound something like this. Ugh, I hate this. I hate this. You know, this past week we discovered that one of our very, very valued staff members' spouse was diagnosed with cancer. And as she shared this information with us, I had that kind of sense, and I don't know if it's just because I'm studying the passage or what, but I had that sense, oh, I just hate this. I hate, I hate what this does to people. I hate what happens with disease. I hate what happens with it. I just there's something inside of us that just says that. And Jesus has this deep emotional kind of sense brewing inside of him there. It is authentic grief and devastation and the havoc that sin and disease and death cause on the human race. But I also think it's something a little else. It's kind of like that sense when someone gets ready for battle and they say, it's go time. See, I think Jesus understands that he's going to be doing something that nobody else would be able to do in this situation. And so the rest is literally history. Jesus proceeds to the tomb. And when he gets there, he prays a very simple prayer. He says, Father, thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I'm just saying this for those who are around listening. I know that you have heard me. And then Jesus shouts in a loud, great voice. I won't do that right now, but... He shouts in this loud voice. You almost never see Jesus shout, by the way. Jesus is not a yeller. He doesn't shout a bunch of stuff. But five times in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus using a great voice to do something. Once when he stills the storm, once in this situation with Lazarus, three times at the cross, Jesus will cry out with a loud voice. But when he does, there is authority, there is power, there is conviction, there is devotion, in that very act of yelling out these words. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And instantaneously, the natural processes of death are reversed. And Lazarus comes hobbling out of the tomb, 
wrapped up. They unwrap him and they restore him to his family. And that is the story of this great miracle. The very end of John chapter 11 is the recorded kind of polarization that takes place after the miracle. Many people, it says, believe, but the religious leaders, this is what seals Jesus' fate. They convene together and they decide it's time to take Jesus out. It's time to take him out. So what are we to learn from this great sign, the raising of Lazarus? There are six things that I'm going to surface. I'm sure that there are more than that, but there are six things that I want to share with you this morning. And what these things do is I hope that they extend and they enrich our experience of how to really live and how to experience real life in this world. So the first one is simply this, and I'm going to hit a couple of them very quickly, but I want to focus on a couple of them as well. It points us to Jesus as the source of real life, capital L life. Do you notice Jesus says here, I am the resurrection and the life. In the Greek language, the way that we use that particular article, the, means the one and only one. The one and only one. I'm the only source of life, really, for this kind of real life. The second was this. It points us to Jesus' authority over the natural laws of the universe. I mean, Clearly, it demonstrates God's power, his capacity to do impossible kinds of things in the world. To bend or alter natural processes, to accelerate and speed up or to slow them down, to interrupt or intercept them. Whatever needs to happen in that moment that God decides needs to happen in the moment, God is quite capable of doing those things. The third one is this. It points us to Jesus' supernatural power over physical death. Over physical death. The raising of Lazarus shows us God is bigger even than physical death. Someone once told me death is the ultimate obscenity. The ultimate obscenity. It is the curse that dogs the human race and will always continue to dog the human race. Death oppresses us. Death bullies us. Death tries to to dominate our perspective and our lives. There's 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 a children's prayer that maybe some of you... Maybe you said it when you were a kid. Maybe you've taught it to your kids or maybe to your grandkids. It goes something like this, and when I say it, you will remember it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's a nice little prayer. Did you know that there's another verse to that that we never hear about? Here it goes. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span, and cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. Wow, can you imagine that one? Sweet dreams, honey. (laughs) You know, sweet dreams, right? But somebody wanted children somehow to know, oh, death is always looming at the door. Watch out, right? Woody Allen, the the playwright and director, once said, I I don't fear death. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But, of course, we have to be, right? And it always seems that it's there in front of us. What do we do with it? Jesus' command to Lazarus, come forth. Come forth, Lazarus. Calls something out of Lazarus that we cannot even imagine or believe. And I sat down this week, and I, just, I was thinking about this and reflecting. I thought, what kind of power is this? What kind of power can do this? And I, I was thinking about it, and I, and I wrote just down some of these thoughts. I said, what kind of power can intercept and roll back the process of bodily decomposition? 
What can make dead cells come alive? What can arrest and override the onset of rigor mortis? Reroute blood pooling in the lower extremities of the body. What can unclog arteries clotted with blood or restart dead organs, fill collapsed lungs with air? What kind of power can restore decayed neurons and reconnect broken synapses and regenerate and activate dead brain cells? And what kind of power does it take to shock a nervous system back into operation without any kind of assistance from external stimuli or advanced medical technology? Do you realize if doctors could do this kind of stuff, and I'm sorry for the pun, they would kill for it. Then ask yourself this question. What kind of power can do this instantaneously? What kind of power can do this instantaneously? And a further question, what kind of power can do this by just speaking it into existence? This is a miracle, a supernatural miracle of the highest sort that you will ever see. And Jesus does it. He is bigger than physical death. Fourthly, it anticipates Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, I myself am the resurrection and the life, right? And this is a matter of real historical record, by the way. The resurrection of Jesus has so much empirical evidence attached to it, it's overwhelming for anybody who really wants to look at it. Incredible empirical evidence about the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. And Jesus sees in the resurrection of Lazarus a future resurrection of himself. There's a fifth one, and that's this. It points us to the reality of life beyond mere existence. A real life, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. Something bigger than just existence or normal life, right? Something that that is more. We live in a culture of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. We don't want to miss out on anything. We don't want to miss out on that experience, that vacation, that TV show, that movie, that whatever. We are constantly looking for the more. And have you ever thought that maybe the real deep reason for FOMO, and we all have it, is that we actually were made for something more? That really down deep inside, you and I were made for something more than just the physical existence that takes place on this planet. That God wanted a different quality of life, a deeper quality of life for people to experience than just mere existence. It's explained this way, and George Carlin used to have a a routine, the comic used to have a routine about this. He would uh, talk about the differences between football and baseball. He would say, football is played on a gridiron, but baseball is played in a park. Football players wear helmets, baseball players wear a cap. In baseball, you have the seventh inning stretch. In football, you have the two-minute warning. Baseball gets extra innings. Football has sudden death. But he said the biggest difference is this. In football, the main objective is military. It's a battle fought in the trenches. The general, that is the quarterback, seeks to evade the blitz, soften up the enemy with a pounding ground attack and aerial bombardments, uses bullet passes and sometimes a long bomb in order to take up real estate. But in baseball, the object is just to go home. (laughs) Just to go home, right? Think about that for a moment, home. Home is the place where you begin. Home is the place where you start out. You can't stay there. 
Because you have to get to first base and second base and third base, and you would think the next base would be fourth base, but it's actually home, right? But home, home is where you are safe. Home is where you are secure. Home is where nobody can touch you. Nobody can bother you. You are completely safe. And I think deep down inside of the human soul, this is the thing that drives us. We are all looking for home. We're all looking for that place where we can do great things with a safety net and to be secure in it. I mean, when you go home, right, you can walk around in your underwear. You can let the dog kiss you on the lips. You can eat Twinkies for breakfast. (laughs) Nobody else will care. Even the police have to get permission to enter your home, right? But home is that, that place. And I believe this. When we're not at home, and you guys have experienced this, maybe as kids, maybe even now. When you're not home, you have homesickness. And when you don't have a home, you have a sort of cosmic homelessness. And I believe that is something that afflicts all of us as a human race. The sense of a cosmic homelessness. And that's why the writer of Psalm 90 says this, Oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You're our dwelling place. See, Jesus would teach this, that when you live a life without God, you are homeless. You have lost your way. And I think when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it simply points out to us that we're looking for home. There's something beyond just mere existence There is a level and a quality that is more alive than ever. And then finally, it points us to the reality of eternal life, a life that goes beyond this life, right? Now, one of the great things about eternal life is it actually starts now. So there's two parts to this. It actually starts right now. It is for this life in this world. And here's where I want to kind of talk about the idea of the number seven now, real quick. John has seven great signs in the book of John, right? We've looked at all of them including the resurrection of Lazarus, right? the, the, the final great sign. Right? But there's one more sign in the book of John. It will be Jesus' bodily resurrection. It is the eighth sign. Now, I want you to think about this. It's just kind of my idea. But, you know, we, we look at the world being created in seven days, right? Total of seven days. Six days and then God rests. Seven days. The number of perfection, the number of completion. Everything is finished. Everything is done. So this eighth sign signals a new creation. A new creation. A new life that Jesus is introducing and unleashing into the world around us. Paul talked about it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is what I think Jesus means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever is believing in me will live, even if he dies. We start a new life right now in this life for this world that will grow and develop into a beautiful, expanded life in the future. In Romans 6, 4, Paul says it this way. We've been buried with him through baptism into his death, that is Christ's death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
So I have this up here because I wanted to flesh this out for you. I wanted to talk about resurrection a little bit differently than you have probably heard it talked about. And I'll try to do this very, very quickly. And I'll try to make it so people can see. But if you can't, you can look up on the, the screens there. You'll see it up there. All right. When God made human beings, he made us very definitively. All right. So think about this as the original creation. And re- imagine these circles are actually um, perfect concentric circles. All right even though my drawing will not be perfect. Human beings are composed of these three elements, and they are all intermixed together. They won't look like this if you cut us open. All right? Uh, Inside, there's this thing called the human spirit. And it is designed to be connected in a deep inner spiritual relationship with God himself. This is the way God made human beings, makes all of us. All right? We have a soul that houses this spirit, okay? And it's comprised of our mind, our emotions, and our will. The way that we think, the way that we feel, the kinds of emotions that we have, and then the kinds of decisions that we make in life, all right? That's the real us that houses this spirit. This is a soul. This is the real you and me. But this soul is housed also in a human body, flesh and blood body. And it interacts or it reflects what's going on inside, what's taking place there. And all of this life is coordinated out of the center, and I've drawn it specifically very large because I think we tend to feel like our human spirit is like this little tiny place inside of us. And I think spiritual space is so expansive we can't even imagine how much of it is part of our existence, right? But everything is coordinated perfectly out of this inner human or excuse me, this inner spiritual connection with God. But sin, when we sin, we take God out of the picture and we place him somewhere else. And we say, God, I'm going to do life without you. I'm going to decide to make my own decisions. I'm going to think my own thoughts. I'm going to feel what I want to feel. And if I feel like this is right, then that's what I'm going to do. And if I think this is the way we should go, we're depending all on our own natural resources as human beings, right? And what that does is it nullifies this spiritual center. And as a result, the way that we think and feel also becomes deformed because there's nothing at the center holding it in. There's nothing giving it structure or cohesion or integrating all of it together into a, into a whole. Right? This is what sin does to us. Sin disintegrates us. It disintegrates us. Right? But God doesn't give up on us. God does something else. God decides to initiate resurrection. And when someone embraces Jesus Christ with all they have and all that they are for the rest of their lives, when they adopt him as Lord and Savior of their lives, God comes back into this inner human spirit. Jesus takes up residence, and in the person of the Holy Spirit, He begins to work inside of us. He makes this center new. He makes it perfect. It makes it righteous, so to speak. That doesn't mean everything about us will be righteous because our lives do not always conform. But the way that we think and feel is not yet fully redeemed. Sometimes our actions are not yet fully redeemed. We struggle. We have habit patterns. We have sins. We have signature sins. We have all kinds of stuff that may be part of this. But this is not this. This is not this. 
And God begins to change us, and here's how it works. He starts a resurrection life inside of us by the resurrected life of Jesus living in us. And he begins to extend his influence out into the way that we think and feel and the kinds of decisions we make. And he starts changing us and he starts conforming us and reforming us until someday what happens is that life will take over and it will explode into this again. That is the beginning of resurrection. It is both a present experience where we are being changed to become more and more and more alive all the time to the someday when we shall be fully alive and more alive than we are now. That is what God has designed for us as human beings. That is that final thing that someday that will be completed. And here's how it happens. The mechanism is the resurrected life of Jesus. The result is the activation of real life, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E, bigger life, more life. And the activation of this whole thing is trusting faith. So the mechanism, the result, but the activation is a trusting faith, someone who embraces Jesus with all they have, all they are for the rest of their lives. That's what Jesus has activated. The one who is believing in me, he says will live even if he dies. Putting yourself all in. It's like the hokey pokey. Put your whole self in. Put your whole self out. Put your whole self in. Shake it all about. Do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself about. Turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. right? And maybe the hokey pokey is what it's all about. Right? Putting your whole self in. I want to share experience with you um, that I had. On uh, June the 23rd, 2010, uh, I had just finished a birthday breakfast with my wife. It was her birthday that day. She was turning 54. And we were at Karen's Bakery over in Folsom. And uh, while we were there, she left. She had to go to work. And so I was studying uh, to teach on a passage, John chapter 11, this very passage. And uh, a couple of hours into that, I get this frantic phone call from my daughter. She said, Dad, you got to come right now. She goes, Carter has had an accident. Carter's our seven-year-old stepson, or step-grandson, excuse me. And uh, she says, there's been an accident. Carter's been hit by a car. You need to get up to Eldorado Hills right away. He's at at White Rock Village where my my son-in-law has a nonprofit organization. So I throw everything in the car, and I rush up there. And I get there just the time that they're lifting Carter's body off the ground to put it into the ambulance. And you could tell right away he's gone. Just gone, right? And I remember distinctly in that moment just praying for a resurrection. I said, God, please raise Carter right now. Um, it's the only time I've ever prayed this. I hope it's not the last time I ever pray it, but it's the only time I've ever prayed it. And God chose not to do it at that moment. We went to the hospital. We gathered around him, all the family, and we prayed for him, and we laid hands on him, and we were there. But God chose not to do that miracle at that moment for us. But God did do other things, and I call them the miracles outside the miracle. God allowed other things to take place at that time. And the distinct impression that kept filling my mind when God decided not to resurrect Carter was simply this. 
He's resurrected already. That actually Carter was more alive than I am at that moment. That he was experiencing capital L life, capital I life, capital F life, capital E life. That is bigger than this life. And it's the one thought that held me together at that time and held our family together. And God did so many other things and allowed us to punch through and crash through some of the quitting points that we had as a family. It's the worst, probably one of the worst days of our lives. We've had others. But it was resurrection power that got us through. It's resurrection power that helped us see the possibilities beyond what it is we expected to have happen and didn't happen, but what God did that we didn't expect to happen in the years following. Look, here's the thing. This power is available to you and I. It is available to us right now for this life and in this world. And so if you like to fill in the blank there, and I know some of you have been really stressed because you thought I was going to forget this on your notes. Jesus' resurrected life in us is stronger than death. Jesus' resurrected life in us is stronger than death. And in Jesus, we're becoming more and more and more alive all the time. So this morning, I just simply want to say, what, what is it you're facing that feels dead? And I realize that some of you in the audience, it may be a marriage. You may just be saying, I have no idea how this is ever going to come back. I have no idea how I'm going to get, I have no idea how I'm going to get over this failure. I have no idea how I'm going to get over this sin that I've committed. I have no idea. It seems impossible, intractable. I don't think it can ever happen. And I want to tell you this, that whatever you are facing today, Jesus is here to enact a resurrection to give you new hope and new life and a clean slate and a new start and all of the things that go along with the resurrection. And it is available for every single one of us here. Someone once shared with me something called the what-if story of the world. And I thought I would share it with you as we're getting ready to close here. The what-if story of the world. In the beginning, God says, what if I make a universe? And what if I make people in my own image on whom I can pour out all of my love and the richness of all of my goodness and who will love me and who will treasure me back? And what if when they sin and they reject me and they turn away from me, what if I don't give up on them? Instead, what if I die on a cross for them? What if I take all of their suffering and all of their shame? What if I take on all of their guilt, all of their pain, and all of the heartache that crushes the human spirit? What if I take all of that on for everyone who has ever lived and whoever will live? And what if God did exactly this in his son Jesus? And then three days later, what if God says to Jesus now, what if you get up? What if you get up? And Jesus did. And when he did, it changed everything. It changed literally everything. And now when life wants to crush my spirit, when it wants to steal my joy, when it wants to limit me and keep me down, when it makes me want to curl up in a fetal position and just give up, I am able to get up. That is resurrection power. Someone once told me, you don't get to choose you don't get to choose how you're going to die. 
but you do get to choose how you will live. You cannot choose how you die, but you do get to choose how you live. And I know we look around at this life and we say, this is the land of the living, but it's not the land of the living. It's the land of the dying. We are all headed towards the sunset. Unless, unless you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, your Master, the very center of life. If that happens, you're not headed toward the sunset, you're headed toward the sunrise. Huh? Most mornings you will find me sitting on my front porch, my house faces east, and I love the sunrise, and I will sit out there with my coffee, it's my time to reflect and read and study and meditate and spend time with God early in the morning, and I love watching the sun come up, and it's just become this ritual in my life that feeds my spirit and my soul in ways that, that few other things can. And a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were getting ready to ride bikes, and it was, uh, you know, on a Friday morning, and she's, uh, she, she said to me, she said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, honey, always face the rising sun. Always head into the rising sun. That's my motto. Always head into the rising sun. The truth about death is this. We will not stay dead. But when our final day in this life comes, Jesus will take our hand and he will say, come forth. Come forth, Paul. Come forth, Sherry. Come forth, Dennis. Come forth, John. Come forth, Alicia. Come forth. And when that happens, we will be more alive than we have ever been. More alive. So what I'd like to do is just pray for us now. Can we pray together? And I'm going to ask the prayer team to come on up here and be available. My guess is this. Many of us are facing things that feel like they're dying in front of us. Man, we want to pray a resurrection into you today. And so I'm going to pray for us all here. And then if you are just sensing something and you just need someone to pray with, these folks are going to be up here. We encourage you coming up. They would love to spend time with you and pray for you. Let's pray together, all right? Jesus, thank you so much that you came and you lived among us. And you spoke words that that no one has ever spoken before, and you taught spiritual truth that was not yet understood by people. You healed those who were sick and infirm and lame, those who were riddled with mental illness. And Lord, when your ministry was finished, you were crucified on a cross for us, but you were raised from the dead. And we thank you for this great sign in the raising of Lazarus that you teach us that you are bigger than physical death, bigger than emotional death, bigger than mental death, bigger than spiritual death, and that you have provided a way home for those who want it. So, Lord, I pray for those who may be here today who have never adopted you as Lord and Savior. Lord, would you lead them home? Would they finally this morning come home to you? That they would give you their heart and their life from this time forward for the rest of their lives. And Lord, I also am aware that there are people here who are facing stuff that, that seems impossible. 
But Jesus, with you, everything is possible because of your resurrection. And so I pray for them. Lord, would you invade their space? Would you invade their situation, their circumstances? Would you be at work not only in them, but in those circumstances as well? well? And would you just manifest your great power to bring life out of death? And Lord, may they experience that sense even now as we're together here and as they leave this place. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we get to be together and that we get to do this. And we offer ourselves again to you today, fresh and new. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for dying, and for living for us now today. We pray all of these things in your name, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.